Hi. Welcome to issue 17 of Scout and Birdie. Poolside. I'm Jennifer Keel. And I'm Anna Wolf. So we chose Poolside as our theme because summer is really here. It is here and we are ready to soak it all up. And what better way to soak up summer than to sit by a pool with a beverage of your choice and just enjoy the summer and really be present in it and get to relax. Mm -hmm. As we were curating this issue, we realized that this is our first one with all female identified artists, which is really, really special. And it translates into the issue in that this issue is filled with feelings of empowerment and, and looking at how our bodies are our own and celebrated or Mm -hmm. how they are seen by others. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a feminine issue and Mm -hmm. it's exciting to see all of these strong women exploring this theme. Yeah. It is really exciting to see these women reflecting on their place in the world and how society treats us as people in female bodies. So it was a really, really wonderful issue. It was so wonderful and we are so excited to share it with you. Currently, Scout and Birdie are sipping on daiquiris, sitting by the pool and soaking up the sun, listening to these beautiful artists. Absolutely. So we invite you to do the same with your drink of choice and we'll take you into the issue. So please enjoy issue 17, Poolside. All right. First up in the issue, we have Megan Powell. Megan is someone that we've both known for a long time now. Mm -hmm. She is a performer in the storytelling scene, and we've been lucky enough to perform with her multiple times. Mm -hmm. And we're so glad for her to be on her first issue of Scout and Birdie. Yes. So please enjoy Megan's piece, An Ode to a Pool with Apologies to Keats. Splendid blue L, preternatural inland sea of child's limbs, dappled chasm of fun, you fit my awkward body like a wedding sleeve, is what I would have tried to say, but did not have these words. I only had Abracadabra by Steve Miller Band, Only Time Will Tell by Asia, and I was working as a waitress in a cocktail bar, floating out from the lifeguards Panasonic perched on the foot rung of his chair, floating out over the water, getting quieter until it was only heat-stroked crickets you could hear in the grass by the fence. I only had how the music meeting the aqua water, meeting the smell of sun-roasted concrete and chlorine and copper tone felt. The anticipation of up and down over roller coaster-like Lansdowne Drive in my aunt's red MG convertible, eyes dried out behind my pink glasses. The taking way too long that only someone who is 12 can feel. The stirrings of romance. Not the, gah, I'm in love with you kind. But what Keats felt 
when he shot out of bed or stood stock still in a forest, and his heart cried, Beauty is truth. The summer before this summer had been Barbies on Eva's back patio and reenacting Xanadu on skates in the driveway, hers, not mine, which was on a sharp hill, air flowing through my hair that was too short and heavy to actually flow and was held back by two braided pink and purple barrettes that I'd made at a slumber party, exactly like all the other girls' ribboned barrettes. And the summer before that, or maybe the summer before that summer, was an overstructured swim day camp at the YWCA that my practical grandmother signed me and my cousin up for, the culmination of which was a swim test wherein we had to wear jeans in the middle of the pool and then remove them. Or at least my cousin swears so. I have blocked this memory. This summer, this summer, it is late May, a few weeks before I turn 12, when my aunt tells me over Sunday dinner at my grandmother's house that she and my uncle have joined the Lansdowne Club, family membership, and I was the family. I am their child, and not their child. They don't have any children. I am the closest thing. I spend the night at their house, a whole weekend while my parents are away, and lay under the flowered quilt she made and listen to crickets and the snuffling of the two Westy dogs and the big exhaust fan in the ceiling of the house. They don't have air conditioning. At the end of that long weekend, I am so sad. I keep the pillowcase that was on my pillow during that stay because it still smells like their house. From where I am looking through pink glasses, I want to be just like them when I am an adult, laughing all the time, having fun. They have people over for chilly nights when there are football games in the fall and for Hoppin' John on New Year's Day. In the summer, Carol cans fruits and vegetables, lays out with no suntan lotion, wears classy white and taupe clothes with espadrilles, works at the liquor store they own, and takes me to the Lansdowne Club pool. We arrive, parking lot baking, dank locker room humid, and we emerge. And there it is, so bright under the sun you'll get a headache, ringed by white chairs and lounges, high and low dives at the end, waiting, waiting to fling the frightened and the brave into 15 feet of water. We have our pick of seats. We go in the morning and leave at four or five. I have to rub suntan lotion all over repeatedly when the lifeguard whistles for a break, but before I do that, I consume a paper basket of the best french fries I will ever eat in my life. Straight cut, thicker than McDonald's, but not as thick as Wendy's. The golden curls of heaven's angels must smell like these fries, prepared by an oil-spattered teenager next to the clubhouse, across a great big lawn from the pool where... I can't remember what happened on that lawn, except waddling in a towel to reach those french fries. The fries are uncommonly buoyant. I stay in the water all day. I turn front somersaults, back somersaults. I edge along the bottom like a stingray. I try to dive into the 10-foot corner. I wait in line for the high dive and step 
off it into the void, hoping a leg or arm won't smack the surface and then scramble from the deep on the edge of panic. I see my body closely all day, the skin, the legs fitting into the hips, feeling it work for me, not denying me. I play Marco Polo with my four third cousins when they come to the pool too. I am glad because we don't talk that much at school. We're all in the same hot, fun soup here. We take over the tall stem of the L in an epic contest of ankle grabbing, launching and lunging, swallowing too much water. Our voices get ragged. The game reaches its apex. Puffy, white clouds sail above us. The water feels like my own skin. My aunt flips over in her chaise in her taupe suit and thinks of making fried corn and tomatoes for dinner, and the lifeguard's radio suddenly bleats a refrain clearly over the joyful chaos. Abra, abra, cadabra. I want to reach out and grab ya. Abra, abra, cadabra. Abra, cadabra. Here, where you aren't clinging to the edge of the continent like at the beach, safe. Entry allowed only with tattered paper membership card. Here, a striped chemical launch pad into something new, something I'm not at school August through May, stuck in a green plaid skirt and in the long, long memories of kids you went through school with from kindergarten on. I didn't pee on the floor outside of the bathroom like Betsy Levy did in first grade, but my name was transmogrified in the way only children can into Megan Paddleboat which had me rolling home in oceans of tears throughout third grade. Here, here, under the sparkling water and the tinny top 40 floating over it, I am timeless, fleeting. I know that I can't hold on to time, that even though my aunt promised to give me the red MG convertible when I turned 18, she probably won't. That there probably won't be a boy who like likes me until I'm in high school that it will be a long time before I could wear espadrilles and taupe clothes and feel good about it. Can I take a deep breath now and hold how this feels inside my lungs and inner ear and draw it within me when I need it later? During the aggrievements of seventh grade, singing off key in the tryouts for guys and dolls, more pairs of unattractive glasses, in the throes of homesickness in the college library, or when I am 33 and wake up alone at 2 a.m. in an apartment in a big city and wonder who will ever love me. I do. I feel it now. Sitting at a desk, hearing Elton John croon down a scale. Blue eyes laughing in the sun, laughing in the rain. Oh, here, here, floating on my back, on you, in you, an astronaut gazing at Earth's atmosphere in reverse, looking out, not in, for once, not looking in. The sun is angled lower, 
Shadows on the grass of the big lawn. The fryer is shut down for the day. Lifeguards are clocking out. We've stayed longer than ever this time. Did you have fun, Suge? My aunt's toes inch on her sandals. I turn my sun-warm towel into a sheath around me. Yep. We leave. Feet squeaking through the dank locker room, even more humid. Towels on the convertible seats. The leather-wrapped stick shift baked in the sun all day. The smell of car oil and suntan oil. And my sweat that didn't quite smell, not yet. Tree leaves waving goodbye, luxuriously, without a care. All right, we're here with Vivian McConnell of Vivi Lightbody, who is here to talk to us about her song, Fish in Fives. Welcome. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm so excited to be here. Just cruised up Lakeshore Drive, listening to Paul Simon Graceland and drank a cold brew, so I'm like on top of the world. Yes, on the most beautiful day of the year so far. It's like 75 degrees outside and yeah. sunny. I'm wearing, just for the listeners, I'm wearing an off-the-shoulder top, which is feels really appropriate, and I'm drinking a Pamplemousse LaCroix. It's perfect. So <laughs> Really La bringing yeah. the listeners into the room Yeah, you know, like you got to paint a picture a yeah. little bit. <laughs> Vivian, do people call you Vivi? Now they have been calling me Vivi um, since I've started, um, you know, performing as Vivi Lightbody, which has been about um, about three years under this name. But yeah, I like being called Vivi. Awesome. Cool. We will call awesome. you that if you are cool with it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about this song, Fish and Fives. So Fish and Fives is a song that was kind of a product of a trip that I took, or I studied abroad in Spain my senior year of college. It was like I actually graduated college from Spain, and I was uh, Bilbao, so like northern coast. So I was by the ocean a lot. I was alone a lot, and I had a classical guitar with me. So I was like really feeling this kind of summer vibe, and also in that moment I was alone a lot just because I don't know, you make friends when you study abroad, but there's like a lot of like reflection time. Um, so I felt like I was really absorbing my surroundings a lot and writing a lot. And so lyrically, Fish and Fives is pretty um, almost nonsensical, but it's kind of like I wanted it to be whatever people wanted it to be in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely does. When we've listened to it in the past, it's sort of really encapsulated the feeling that we have when we think of poolside, mm -hmm. of this like beachy vibe and relaxation and summer reflection. Yeah, I mean, parts of the song I wrote on a beach and then this sounds so, I don't know, bougie, but I <laughs> flew to Paris one weekend to visit my cousin who was living there and I wrote one of the parts, you know, on a Shea Lounge um, just like, you know, it's kind of like, has like cocktail lounge mm -hmm. vibes, but then like, it's like sunny, warm afternoon, like you're laying on the couch, maybe taking a nap. You're just like, I wanted people to be able to kind of walk around to it. And, you know, there's the, ah, ah, which is, you know, just a hook, but just like a really, it's a really breathable, relaxed hook. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. 
It definitely has a calming nature when you listen to it. And I think it, even if it wasn't this beautiful 75 degree day, that song could sort of get you in that feeling of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this song is a part of a larger album called Bathing Peach, Mm -hmm. which you just released. So yeah. Tell us a little bit about that process and how it's been working on creating an album. Yeah. So um, Bathing Peach, which came out June 15th. I'm so excited about it. Um, Mostly I'm excited because I started recording the record about three years ago. And in the beginning, I wanted to take my time with it. And I recorded with my friend who's also an engineer and also plays piano and, and keyboard with me. So I wanted to take my time with it which was really important for me at that time because I had been playing in two other rock bands where there was like so much pressure put on me all the time. And so I wanted this project to be my time, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so the record, like as it got closer to being released, um, I kind of felt that pressure again. I was like, all right, I need to get this out. I need to get this baby, birth this baby peach, you know? alternate to album title, Baby Peach, but I need to get it out in the world. So I I had some friends who helped make some tapes and CDs, um, but you know I also kind of worked on a lot of it like independently, and I just did a lot of the work myself, which was really awesome and helpful and cool, but I'm very relieved that, that it's out. So. It's a beautiful, beautiful album. We were just listening to it before you came over. So Cool, thank you. Congratulations. It's really Congratulations. wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. So Vivi Lightbody, it came from, you know, some songs that weren't quite right for my other bands, but also just like I was wanting a little bit more control because my other bands were a little more democratic or I didn't have as much say in them. So I really wanted to um, have creative control over Bathing Peach. Um, And it also kind of, the record, like I really started recording it after a breakup. And so the record kind of spans a whole breakup. Like in the beginning, it's like, I'm in love. I'm on the ocean. I'm floating in the ocean. I love this. It feels so great. And by the end, I'm like, okay, I'm moving on. I'm seeing other people and I'm kind of like exploring this world without this person. So it's really, um, I don't know. It's kind of interesting how the record shifts and moves, um, and ups and downs emotionally. So it's always lovely when I love listening to albums full through just in the way that they're meant to be listened to. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we do that so often now with like Spotify and different playlists. You kind of find them differently, but this one is very lovely in that you could just listen to it and kind of go through the emotions with you. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. That makes me super happy because that's what I want people to experience, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, to take you through an entire story and have, like, a narrative that goes throughout. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also, like, lyrically, Vivi Lightbody, um, I wanted to be a little more direct because, you know, with my other bands, with lyric writing, I was always kind of vague and, you know, using a lot of metaphors. I mean, I still use a lot of metaphors, but um, I'm just, like, kind of not afraid to speak my mind anymore, and that feels really good. Um, And I've had a lot of um, people come up and they're like, Oh, that one song, um, you know, Fig Leaves, for example, like I know exactly how you feel. Um, and that feels really good because sometimes when you're a little too vague, people can connect, but not as hard as if you're like, you know, being mm-hmm. direct, I guess. 
Yeah, we always say in storytelling that like specificity is really what hooks people in. Right. So the more specific you can get in your story, in your art, mm-hmm. is what actually brings the people in, even if yeah. you feel like this is so inherently just my experience. It helps people empathize a little bit greater. So yeah, it's lovely, lovely. And you can definitely tell that in this album. Yeah, totally. And I like, you know, the word lovely is makes me you know, blush a little in a, in a good way. Cause like, this is also a more like feminine project of mine, um, where I was mostly playing in bands. <laughs> I like keep talking about my other bands, but it's like a good way for me mm-hmm. to kind of compare it. But, um, you know, whereas there, it was like a lot of men and, um, I feel like I just wanted this to be like pretty, almost sexy in a way. Yeah. Um, and just like, you know, you're like laying on a couch, you're waking up in the morning and you're just like loving yourself and figuring out yourself and going, walking through this world, just like, all right, cool, let's do this. Yeah. So it's such a contrast to the roughness of like a rock band too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, even though, I mean, like I love rock and roll, don't get me wrong. (laughs) I, I mean, um, as much as the next person, but these songs feel very honest for me and they feel like they're exactly what is coming out of my body, if that makes sense. Like, after I play a VV Lightbody set, I feel relaxed. Mm. Whereas, like, when I play, like, a rock and roll set, I'm a little more, like, you know... Amped. Amped, you know? (laughs) I mean, I guess I'm still excited, but it's, like, I'm not overextending my voice. It's, like, my natural Mm -hmm. voice. And I write all the songs to be in that that zone. There's something really liberating and exciting about truly like giving yourself to an audience and not having a mask of like a character or anything that's separating you from that right and so to have written these songs primarily just by yourself and to really be thinking about how you're representing yourself Mm -hmm. I can imagine it's a really exciting feeling to just share those raw emotions right it is super raw and and also with that too it's like Vivi is it's a persona but it's more of like it's like a reflection of Vivian, you know? So it's, um, it's really fun because I can exaggerate truths a little and mm-hmm. stretch stories a little and people are like, oh, is this Vivi or is this Vivian? But either way, I'm still like able to express myself and like get out those, those feelings, you know, and maybe get away with being a little bit more direct um, yeah. because it's under this name, you know, so. Well, we hope all of you at home go to listen to Bathing Peach and listen to the album as a whole because it is truly gorgeous. And now we will take you into Fish in Fives. Thanks so much for being here with us, Vivi. Thanks for having me, Scout and Birdie.
Next up in the issue is Emma Casey. And Jen and I both know Emma from getting to see her perform in a show that our friend was also performing in. And her piece was so poetic and, and beautiful. And right away, we knew we wanted to have her on for an issue of Scout and Birdie. Yes. So we are thrilled to be sharing her piece, Dry Drowning, A Few Gasps. In the big storm, we stopped to watch the big storm, which was enough. We sat on the front porch and drank beer, grateful to have nothing else to do just then, while we watched the water pour in, while life washed by on the street. Water is something to watch. People in water are something to watch. People are something to watch. In 2003, the music video for the song Stacy's Mom was released by the band Fountains of Wayne. The video was very good. By very good, I mean very easy to watch. The song and the video are built out of the fantasy of a straight preteen boy, a video from and for the male gaze. A fantasy, which most pop songs and music videos are, so I can't exactly fault it for that. I remember hearing an uncle of mine say, Stacy's mom really does have it going on, which as a 13-year-old girl, I found unnerving because I thought that the woman in the video looked closer to the age of my peers and the high school girls that I saw at school than to any of the moms I knew. In the video, she's shown emerging from the backyard pool, large-chested in a small bikini, dripping. I saw the video week after week on the VH1 video countdown. It was a great video because it featured great boobs, which is to say a direct appeal to the small-mindedness of a certain population of straight men. In college, I was a swimmer for two seasons. I got into a swimsuit and into the pool five days a week for about 90 minutes a day in the dead of winter. On weekends, I taught swim lessons. I'd never been an athlete, but I had always been a competent swimmer, which was exactly the prerequisite for our gentle liberal arts college team. I learned that if you do something that much, you will get better at it. It's impossible to not. Around that time, I was starting to realize that I had a body. I've been fortunate to have the kind of easy-to-maintain body that doesn't often yell at me to slow down and pay attention to it, so until the middle of college, I pretty much hadn't. I hadn't considered firsthand how bodies change shape for the tasks they perform, how that process can change you inside and out. 
Swim practice didn't feel like being nearly naked, though we were. It became clear to me that the feeling of my body in a sports swimsuit was different than in a casual one, and swim practice so different than a day at the pool, wearing sunscreen and faking confidence. Being sausaged into tiny competition suits was functional. In college, we were a team of queer bodies and changing college bodies and big, fast bodies and small, slow bodies. Shape didn't matter. Showing up to practice mattered, and showering after mattered, and eating dinner mattered, and swimming mattered. One day, standing on the deck before practice in a red suit with thin black straps, my assistant coach looked at me and said happily, Emma, you look like a swimmer. My shoulders were broader and my waist was narrower, and it clicked in my head that I was starting to have a body that was shaped like I swam for hours every week, because I did. Louis Sullivan is famously quoted as the author of the notion that form ever follows function. This is true, embodies both human and architectural. When I started swimming, I felt for the first time in my life like I was the architect of my physical form. I'd made my own clothes for several years to get close to that feeling, but suddenly that was mere ornament. This was structural. I was a woman of big shoulders, and I was elated. Richard Nickel was a Chicagoan and architectural preservationist in the 1960s and early 1970s. He is responsible for photographing and preserving so many pieces of lost Louis Sullivan buildings. The many Sullivan buildings that still stand in our great city are well worth a visit. I personally love the facade of the Krauss Music Store, having worked next door to it for years. Richard Nichols' story is a kind of tragic love story, where everyone dies for no reason. The kind where love lives on, but only just barely, in the telling. Richard Nichols was obsessed with these buildings. He lived in a time when Chicago was demolishing her buildings like they grew naturally from the silty earth on the western shore of Lake Michigan. Like they were nothing. He knew they weren't nothing. In the relatively short span of modern architectural history, he knew that the preservation was key and to destroy a building was one of a million metaphors for callous destruction of the past and of beauty. The tragedy of his story comes with his own death on one of several preservation missions to the old stock exchange. He was crushed under part of the demolishing building. Richard Nichols' grave is in Graceland Cemetery. It is a small and sleek headstone and heartbreakingly close to Louis Sullivan's grave, which is also not far from a Sullivan-designed tomb. It's a quiet, full circle. One summer between college years, I got a job as a lifeguard at a private outdoor pool for a condo building on the northwest side of Chicago. I thrifted a pair of red and blue lifeguard short shorts and was given a navy blue lifeguard swimsuit. I wore my swimsuit and short shorts, tan skin, ponytail, and sunglasses, attempting to conjure some air of no-bullshit leisure. The image of Wendy Pfefferkorn from the sandlot was never far from my mind. Four days a week I got dressed to sit on the deck and tend the waters of a pool that existed for the pleasure of the building's residents. The pool was generally not exciting, and playing the character of hot lifeguard gave me something to do. 
I felt like a really good actor when my hot lifeguard persona did end up attracting a sad, pale man. We went on a few dates, and I wasn't interested, and the no-bullshit lifeguard in me needed to end it. He sent me a couple intense emails and showed up beside my bike one day after work, eyes wet. It made me nervous enough that I started to park my bike on a different block. Soon the summer ended and I went back to school 800 miles away. I had succeeded in my Wendy Pfefferkorn summer. A lonely young man had gawked long enough to make me think he was drowning, long enough to consider saving him. I had become the object of the male gaze and subsequent male creepiness. I was a character in my own summer and I wasn't even mad about it. I grew up on the north side of Chicago, on the border of Uptown and Ravenswood in a slice of a long townhouse with a massive Victorian home as a neighbor. The whole block is a collection of different styles of buildings. Multi-unit apartments, single-family homes, townhouses. The former American Indian Center is at the south end. The house Carl Sandburg was living in when he wrote Chicago is a block over. It's a very nice few blocks. There are a lot of trees. At the very end of May 2018, the massive Victorian house next door to my parents' house was demolished. Sometime in my preteen age, I was friendly with the neighbor kids, and I got to spend a few afternoons in that house. It was beautiful. The owner restored it, and when he passed away last year, it was sold, and when it was sold, it was obviously fated to be demolished. The American Indian Center moved out of the building at the end of the block, which has been in a state of disuse and demolition for over a year now. After a teenager died in it, the abandoned Ravenswood Hospital was cleaned up and is for rent. The Chicago landmark Abbott Laboratories mansion has been for sale for ages. The All Saints Episcopal Church got a fantastic new paint job a few years ago. Changes happen and demolition happens and some old buildings are lost and some are restored and some bland new buildings go up. Clean, plastic, sans serif, higher property taxes. On the day of the demolition of the 130-year-old Victorian, I spent about two hours watching. I saw them tear apart the brick chimney, and I came back later when the back of the house was gone, and they'd moved into the center and onto the side walls. I was standing across the street when a man who lived in an apartment building on the block came up and said, This happens all the time where I'm from. He was from the suburbs. He went on, Think of how much asbestos must be in there. That stucco was moldy. I wasn't enjoying this naysayer's company. The demolition was fascinating, and I stood there trying to figure out why. I was mad, and I didn't know who to be mad at. But it felt right to be bearing witness to something, a something that someone built was now being unbuilt by people who were just doing their job. I wasn't mad at the owner's adult kids who ultimately sold the place, or the demolition guys, though I wonder how they must feel about all of the ghosts they unsettle on a given day. I was just mad at this whole boring and uncreative system of economics, the one that values new buildings and nice neighborhoods and new tenants at the expense of the character and history that make a particular place worth moving to and living in. And to be honest, I was enjoying something to be angry about that day, a sense of purpose enough to spend a few hours I could be there with all of the permission in the world, 
on my old block, watching the geographic landscape of my childhood change, as we all must. It was interesting to watch. I did not think about being watched. I did not think about existing outside of myself and my nostalgia and my anger. I did not think about my bare legs on a warm day and the bike I rode over on. I went inside for a few minutes to catch up with my mom, home from work. When I went back to my bike, I found a note from the men of the demolition team perched on my handlebars. To a beautiful lady, it said, and on the other side, one of them had left his phone number, offering me a good friendship. My stomach turned. They saw me. They saw me lock my bike to a signpost and saw me go inside and left me a note to let me know they saw me. I have a female body, and it is always visible even when I believe I am living far away from my corporeal form. Even when I cast myself in my own story as a historian of memory, excavating layers of Stacy's mom and swimming bodies and Wendy Pfefferkorn and Richard Nickel and looking, possessing, destroying, even when I give myself the task of trying to tie them all together, even when I try to write all of myself in a single piecemeal prose piece, I have a female body that I have built myself day after day in all of my clothing and movement and meals and even when I feel so strongly that it's mine and only mine for the using, I have a female body, and I guess that's something some people need to let me know they know. In the summer, Chicago is born in big blues and bright greens. Every day I take big gulps of the lake, miles of it, for breakfast. Open air bites out of the corners of my eyes. Run away from all of the looking that happens between the cement of the sidewalks and the brick of the buildings. Later, I bring home the sand and that spacious air of the beach. The infinite rush of water over sand under feet. Do it again tomorrow. Okay, next up in the issue, we have our friend Nair Na. You'll remember Nair from our Passing Notes issue where she shared her song, Eggshells, and we are so thrilled to have her back. So with that, we'll take you into her song, The Reservoir. I was named for an island. I was claimed by the sea. And so the flow is all I know. The wave is all I crave, and that's a summary of me. When the warning washes up, I've started drinking like my father. Cut off the water, no, I'd rather let it run. It simply isn't done. The shower's much louder. When it thunders on The backs of the lovers Who get what they want So savor the flavor Of plastic and paper Of 
cotton and stone and nothing you've known home is an ocean grown by the land the reservoir leaks and it bleeds and it seeps and it's clean and it's grand Next up in the issue is Carly Jo Gear. And Jen and I both know Carly because she is a wonderful solo performer in the scene. Mm-hmm. And this is her first time on Scout and Birdie. So get ready for some fun in the sun with her piece. Lonely Ants Matter Too. I look down at my legs, submerged in water. My skin tone looks lighter. Whatever little tan I have gained on this vacation disappears in the clear blue pool. My thighs look skinnier. I like my thighs the way they are, but underwater they look like they've been photoshopped. All of my flaws have been filtered through the distorted lens of this Jamaican all-inclusive resort water. I am sitting at the swim-up bar. Normally, sitting on a bar stool for a long period of time makes my knees feel stiff, but here, it's like I no longer have arthritis. My family is all napping. It's 2 p.m. on the final full day of our vacation. I have been waiting to sit at the swim-up bar for the past four days of this trip. Growing up with a pool, I have always loved being in water. My parents used to call me a fish when I was a kid. During my high school years, because of my insecurities of being in a bathing suit, I missed out on enjoying my childhood home's pool. Every year, my dad would open it in June, and every year, less and less of us actually used it. But now, I never turned down an opportunity to swim. No longer burdened by the thoughts of, should I wear a t-shirt while swimming? If you wear a t-shirt, they can't see that you're fat, but you're wearing a t-shirt so they know that you're fat. However, here, on this vacation, I am fat, and I am not afraid to show every male employee on this resort exactly how fat I am. I have been waiting to sit at the swim-up bar for the past four days of this trip because I am on vacation with my sister, my brother-in-law, my two-and-a-half-year-old nephew, and my father with dementia. I know the reason my sister invited me on this trip is because she wanted to, no, needed to go on vacation, but couldn't leave my father at home. The last trip they took, I spent a week in New Hampshire with my dad. 
This time I think she figured that she could get a break from my dad and not feel guilty about leaving me behind. It's noontime, just a few hours before I'm at the swim-up bar. My family has somehow managed to find two lounge chairs together by one of the kiddie pools. Dad occupies one, enjoying the sun in his new straw hat and sunglasses, while my sister and I alternate sharing the other one. My sister and I start discussing what to do about lunch. We don't want to give up our lounge chairs since they were so hard to come by, but we're getting hungry. We notice that people are bringing plates of food plastic wrapped from Barbecue Park. Oh, it looks like you can get takeout from Barbecue Park. Let's do that. I walk over to the restaurant to get a menu for us to look at. As I make my way past the walk-up portion of the swim-up bar, I hear, Hey, Carly, how are you doing? Aware that there are now several bartenders here that know my name and drink order, I look over to see Nicholas, who served me last night at the piano bar. He is wearing a tan and brown Hawaiian shirt, like the other bartenders, but I almost didn't recognize him out of his blue-collared shirt with the black vest from the night before. But I guess this tiki hut isn't quite as swanky as the piano bar. When I come back with my menus, my sister is on the phone. I can tell by the words she is using that this is not a casual phone call. She is talking to someone that requires a responsible and excited tone. Listening in on what she is saying, I realize that she's talking to a social worker, and the news is that they'll be taking in a one-year-old foster child as soon as they get back from vacation. After the uphill battle to get pregnant with her polycystic ovary syndrome, my sister was no longer sitting idly by to have more kids. And with one adoption already falling through, this was the most exciting news she could be receiving at this moment. Hey, it's my favorite family! Alex S., a guy we chatted with numerous times in the gift shop, says this as he's walking by. He is by far the cutest employee on the resort, and I know for a fact that he asked about me when my sister went into the gift shop without me. Where is your troubled sister? Hungover, she told him. You guys want a shot? <laughs> Never one to turn down a shot. I, of course, say yes. Bethany, who probably hasn't taken a shot in years, also says yes. I mean, she's getting a new kid after all. After our shots, I head over to order our lunch. While I'm waiting for the food to be ready, my sister joins me after using the bathroom. We decide to wait together because it will be difficult for me to carry all the food by myself. My phone rings. It's my brother-in-law. Your dad has to use the bathroom. Panic mode sets in. Dad is wearing a diaper under his bathing suit, but we're still not trying to have any more accidents on this trip. I'm coming, I tell him. The walk to the bathroom is slow. Dad doesn't move very fast, and he often walks in the wrong direction, even when he's following you. We make it to the men's room in time, but as I am waiting outside, I am becoming increasingly aware of the fact that my dad has been in the bathroom for far too long. Something went wrong. He's never quick in there, but he's never this slow either. After about 30 minutes, he finally comes out. There is toilet paper sticking out of his fly, and I can see that there is poop running down his leg. I couldn't get my shots off, Kylie. I look at the drawstring on his swimsuit and see that he has tied it in multiple knots when he got dressed this morning and had therefore trapped himself in his own bathing suit. It's okay, Dad. Let's go back to the room. I call my sister and tell her what we're doing. She says she'll meet us back at our rooms with the food. On the elevator up to our room, an employee with a 10-year-old child as part of the kids' camp is in the elevator with us. We all get off on the fourth floor, and as we exit, the boy asks the employee why the elevator smells like poop. I wonder if the employee could tell that it was my dad. Back in our hotel room, I help my dad undress. I am as careful as possible as to not cover him in any more shit than he's already covered in. I throw away the diaper, his swimsuit, and his socks. 
I hand him a wet washcloth with soap on it that I also throw away after. I hope that the cleaning people don't notice that they're missing numerous washcloths, but there's no way that I'd ever make another person touch my dad's poop. I carefully clean whatever I can off my dad's sneakers and find him a new outfit to put on. I carry the trash bag out into the hallway and dispose of it in the housekeeper's unattended cart in the hallway. I'm sorry about the smell, but I can't live with it in our bathroom, and again, I can't bear the idea of letting another person change this bag. My sister has brought our food over to our room while she took hers to her room. It stings that her initial reaction is to separate us. Why doesn't she want to eat lunch with me? I just cleaned up our father, and now you don't even want to hang out with me? I know I shouldn't look at it that way, but it's been a long week of watching my sister and her husband do things for my nephew together and leaving me alone with my dad. I'm happy to be on dad duty, but I want to be with my whole family. I want to know that she wanted me here to be with me, not just because she felt guilty. I remind myself over and over again, Bethany lives with dad. She deals with us all the time. You see him every few months this is the least you can do. But it's hard not to feel left out. I'm going down to the pool, I tell my dad as I tuck him in for his nap after lunch. Can I go with you? He asks. As much as this is his last full day of vacation, too, I know that I won't be able to sit at the swim-up bar if he is with me, and this is my last opportunity to experience it. You've had a long day, Dad. You need your rest. Okay. He closes his eyes. Sitting at the swim-up bar, I have never needed this more in my life. I look over the menu at all the different mojitos and tropical drinks that require a blender. Knowing full well that I am taking advantage of the all-inclusiveness of this resort, I opt for my usual vodka soda because the hangover won't be as bad. Hey, are you sure you don't want to try something a little more exciting? The bartender Nicholas asks me. No, I'm easy, I tell him. But Nicholas already knows that I'm easy because I fucked him in a bathroom stall below the piano bar last night. Let me make you something special. Nicholas says this to me as I sit down in one of the tall bar stools at the piano bar the night before. I know one of the lounge chairs would be much more comfortable, but again, it's past my family's bedtime, so I'm flying solo. Whether I make friends here or not, the bartender will definitely talk to me. I already have a drink, I tell him, because I know now that whatever nasty, sugary concoction he is trying to make me will give me a headache. Everyone in this lounge tonight are parents from Massachusetts, I discover as I start chatting with several other couples. I'm from New Hampshire! Oh my god! It's Mass's spring break, and I could not be in better company. These are the parents that I understand, the kind of parents that I babysit for in Chicago. They are rich, they are well-traveled, and they like to drink. I often find myself chatting with random parents in bars. Talking with them over drinks fills the void of the adult relationship that I will never have with my mother and the relationship that I can no longer have with my father. And for them, I am the child that actually wants to be seen with them in public. We complete each other. We validate each other. We are a brief picture of what a relationship between an adult child and their parents could look like if children appreciated their parents and if parents weren't so judgmental of their own kids. Bring these downstairs to the bathrooms. There's no cameras there. Nicholas whispers as he slides two whiskey glasses, a quarter filled with a dark green liquor towards me. Damn, I never turn down free shots. Granted, everything here is all-inclusive, so it's not really free, but I obey. Mmm, mint and whiskey. What the fuck, Nicholas? Really? This shot is fucking nasty. But 
Maybe this is your way of taking a whiskey shot and not having your breath taste like whiskey when you kiss me. I'm going to close the bar early. Toothbrush, toothpaste, condoms, and my silver bullet vibrator. I always make sure to pack all the essentials when I'm on vacation. I wasn't expecting to have sex on this trip. I knew it might be a possibility, but I definitely didn't think it would be a guarantee. But here in Jamaica, I am so much higher than my Chicago snack status. In Jamaica, on a family resort, being the only single gal here, I'm looking like a two-for-20 meal, margaritas included. We start out in the utility closet. There's a mop bucket as well as a water basin with a drain to fill said bucket. This could not be more of a 180 from the rest of the resort. This glamorous, exciting one-night stand is quickly going south as I tell Nicholas from my bear walk position that the floor is sticky. Thinking quickly, I can tell that he is nervous. I mean, I can't blame him. He's on the clock while I'm on his cock. But he is determined to finish. We move to the women's bathroom. It has one stall, a sink with a marble countertop, and a door that doesn't lock. This is the vacation sex I wanted, though. Hot and heavy on a marble countertop, my flowing black skirt lifted up while my straps on my bra and tank top have been pulled down. My lower back banging against the faucet that will cause a bruise. I proudly named my Jamaican tramp stamp when I show it off to my friends back home. The cleaning people will be here in 15 minutes, Nicholas tells me as he continues to thrust. But he isn't done showing this tourist what Jamaica is all about. We move into the stall where I stand, feet on the toilet seat, and hands against the wall behind it, a position only possible because of his height. I'm using muscles in my legs that I didn't even know existed to balance myself in this doggy-style position. We can hear the cleaning people outside the door as I jump off the toilet seat and pick up my panties off the floor so they can't be seen under the stall door. Nicholas slides between the toilet and the wall so that the sink blocks his feet. The bathroom door opens. Hello? I say in my whitest, most I'm-supposed-to-be-in-here voice. Oh, so sorry, miss. I'll come back later. I climb back onto the toilet seat. Last up in the issue, we have Sam Didian. And Sam is a wonderful poet who we met at our friend Caroline Watson's poetry open mic, Grandma's House. And we saw her perform this piece and we knew we had to have it on Scout and Birdie. It made us feel so empowered and wonderful. So please enjoy Sam's piece, Secret Sexy. I was once told by a man at a bar that I am secret sexy. And in my youth, I'm thinking, that's cute. But then as I got older, like a few seconds older, I thought, the hell you mean I'm not just outright regular old sexy sexy? Like swivel those hips, sachet down the sidewalk, sparkle in the pasta aisle kind of sexy, like Look at you looking the way you lookin' kind of sexy, like Armenian goddess and Irish queen kind of sexy, like 
You better work those sweatpants you've had since high school and pour yourself a few glasses of wine on a Tuesday kind of sexy that wake up in the morning with mascara under your eye because you are so damn tired after a 12 plus hour shift that taking it off is sometimes a back burner activity kind of sexy that wind and grind and grind some more kind of sexy that goes to bed with her hair wet and wakes up looking like a who from Whoville kind of sexy that stand up, speak out, don't be silent unless you are meant to listen. March for lives, march for women, Black Lives Matter, intersectional feminist. You don't always deserve the microphone kind of sexy that I'll take the time and make the time to teach you kind of sexy. That it took me a damn long time to have this kind of confidence sexy and still I have rough days kind of sexy. I am woman kind of sexy. Hear me roar kind of sexy. I truly think that that is a terrible song kind of sexy. So hear me sing kind of sexy. Hey, kind of sexy that I can br br break it down on the dance floor and yes I dance around when I'm cooking kind of sexy and speaking of food I am hungry right now kind of sexy and I could do with a good filet mignon and a honey whiskey on the rocks but maybe a gin and soda with a squeeze of lemon kind of sexy and you're welcome to buy me a drink and I'll buy you one too but that exchange of pleasantry does not mean you get to pleasure me kind of sexy. That I have insomnia and also PTSD kind of sexy and it took me years to reclaim this and this and this kind of sexy and I am doing just fine kind of sexy. I'm a survivor kind of sexy, a warrior sexy, a healer sexy, and I walk around naked in my apartment kind of sexy. And now, now you're picturing me naked in my apartment. Kind of sexy. And that's okay. That's okay. Because it's a cute apartment. And I am that sexy kind of sexy. Ain't nothing secret about that. That's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to stay connected with us in between issues, go on to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and like and follow us. Be sure to go to scoutandbirdie.com where you can learn more about the artists and find out where to keep up with each of them. If you would like to be featured in a future issue of Scout and Birdie, go on to scoutandbirdie.com, click on the submission tab, and send us your stuff. We'll see you next time with issue 18, Red Flag. I'm Anna Wolf. And I'm Jennifer Keel. And we're going to play you out with another song by the wonderfully talented Vivi Lightbody called Fig Leaves. Bye. Bye. Bye.